praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Father, the Lamb is worthy of these praises from all the nations and all the peoples. The Lamb is worthy. Jesus is worth losing a son for in Syria, whom we buried on Wednesday. Jesus is worth having your life put into upheaval twice in a row and be airlifted out of a land in Africa and have to live with a few pairs of clothing in Kenya for who knows how long, which happened this week to two of our families. Jesus is worth it. And so I pray, Lord, now as we draw this mission's focus to a close, that in this room, senders would be born and goers would be created. Confirm the calling that you've been speaking into the lives in this room. Confirm them so that they'll know what they're to do at the end of this service. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's begin with the word nations and the word peoples right there in verse 1. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. Uh, a few years ago when I preached a missions message, a little girl came up to me at the end of the service and she said, Is peoples a word? Because she had learned well that to make a word plural, you put an S on the end, but if it's already plural, people, why would you put an S on the end, right? People can be made plural for the same reason group can be made plural. And nobody stumbles over groups. And the reason group can be made plural is because even though there are a lot of people already in it, they're united and made singular by something common. And the reason people can be made plural is because they are united and made single in a biblical sense by a culture, a language, customs, physical features. And so it's not at all odd to say that there is a people knit together by a language, knit together by features, ethnicity, customs, and there are more than one of those in the world. Lots more than one. For example, if you go to the website China Source, what you see on the front page is 60 peoples in China which immediately alerts us to this biblical truth. When you read nations and peoples in Psalm 117, verse 1, you should not think China, America, Argentina, Indonesia, Algeria. You should not think in political states. 
you should think what you see on the front page of China Source, namely 60 peoples, and that's just the tip of the iceberg in China. You should see Dulong, Li, Lisu, Shui, Salar, Yao. Or if you go to the Bible, Genesis chapter 10, you should think Jebusites, Amorites, Girgashites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvadites, Zemorites, Hamathites, and so on. So that when we come and we say these words in Psalm 17, verse 1, Praise the Lord, all nations, and extol him, all peoples. We should think, praise the Lord, Baluch of Pakistan. We should we should think, praise the Lord, Maninka of Guinea. We should think, praise the Lord, Bugis of Indonesia. And praise the Lord, Wa of China. As we heard on Wednesday night, that perhaps the Kachin of Myanmar might be instrumental in reaching the Wa of China because the borders are close and there's an openness there that there isn't to many other groups. When Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth belong to me, go make disciples, therefore, of all nations, he meant this. And when he said in Matthew 24, 14, this gospel shall be preached throughout all the world as a testimony to all the nations, he meant this, these peoples, these realities. So. For a church like ours, indeed for every faithful church, I believe, the question should be paramount. How many are there? And how many of them are not reached yet with the gospel? The missionary question, let's get this distinction down at Bethlehem. The missionary question is not, where are there unbelievers? And then send a missionary there. There are unbelievers everywhere. That's not the missionary question. Your neighbors are unbelievers. You are not a missionary when you go reach them. Unless they happen to be Somali and speak another language. And you have to work real hard to cross a culture. The missionary question is, where are there peoples who don't have any Christians in them or don't have a church strong enough to do the neighbor evangelism that we can do if we just want to do it. That's the missionary question. That's this morning's question. That's the question of peoples and nations. How many are there? How many are unreached? We don't need to get bent out of shape by the fact that Different research groups count them different ways. Go with anyone you want and head for an unreached people. Let's go to one. IMB.org. That's the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Church. The Southern Baptist Church has one of those sophisticated, large, energetic, energetic uh, research arms for the sake of determining where can we go where we're not doing missions to the reached. They count, if you go to this website slash 
global research, 11,227 people groups in the world. Now, you've heard 24,000, 17,000. That's just because people count dialects differently and customs differently. That's not a big deal. Of these 11,000, 6,614 have fewer than 2% evangelical Christians. And if you wanted to find out how many of those have none, you can go there and find that out. 68 of those 6,000 have populations over 10 million. 433 of those peoples have populations over 110 million. 1,000 452 have populations between 100,000 and a million. Implication, the day of missions is not over. It is urgent. You will hear some say, and I want to respond to this, the day of Western missions is over. Let the people there do the work And you send money and support them because they can do it more cheaply. That's dead wrong for several reasons. It might be based on the fact that the people who say it really don't believe in the necessity of a person to be saved or that anyone's perishing. But really, it's usually based, when Christians say it, on the basis of of the fact that they believe the local people can do a better job than Westerners. Here's the problem. There aren't any local Christians. That's the meaning of unreached. That's simple. In people groups that don't have churches, because no missionary has crossed the culture, learned the language, planted the church, there's nobody to do evangelism. And then they will say, Well, but there are perhaps neighboring tribes that live simply, have customs that are a little more close and would cross the line more easily. Not so necessarily. Maybe, but not so necessarily for this reason. Right across a mountain range or across a river or across a little strip of desert may be another people group in which there have been centuries of hostilities. Deep distrust and animosities. They would no more willingly receive a missionary from that tribe to this tribe than we would receive a Martian. And someone from America or Brazil or Switzerland might in fact have a greater impact there than the nearby tribe. The point is, it's complex and it is not to be assumed that the day of Western missions is over. The day this church says our sending and going is over, you can write Ichabod across this church. The glory has departed. Forsaken will be the sign that hangs over the church that says, we don't do missions. Local people there do missions. If you have a child who doesn't know that peoples is a word, you've got some work to do. I have a suggestion for you. What we've done is raised four boys on this little booklet called Global Prayer Digest. They expected this every morning. Give us a story about the Luzu people of China 
or about the Bunan. One page, a picture, a little story, and a people group. Pray takes three minutes. Ralph Winter said, nothing changes people except what they do every day. That's an overstatement. Ralph Winter only talks in overstatements. Just have to learn how to listen to certain people. All overstatements have a truth that they're trying to make. And it is that when you do something every day, it changes, changes, which is probably why all of our boys went into missions during the summers of their high school with Teen Mission International. Abraham even went as a preteen. You can you can send your preteens 10 years old to missions for the summer through Teen Mission International. Every kid in this church ought to do a missions trip sometime. We ought to breed kids who not only know that there is an S at the end of the word peoples for a missionary reason, but who go. It is just done. Mission trips are as normal as vacations. And now we're doing it with Talitha. So this is the November book. You can subscribe to this book for about six bucks a year or you can get it free online. Global Prayer Digest, a daily exposure to a new people group each day. There's just one way. It's not the only way. If you have kids or you care about kids or if you don't know that peoples is a word. And why? And you don't know that there are 11,000 plus people groups. And you don't know who the unreached are. And you don't carry a daily burden to pray for the least reached. And you get it for yourself. And get up to speed in God's global purpose. Oh, that we might be a church where children and youth not only know that peoples is a word, but who consider short-term missions as normal as vacations and who consider the dangers and the burdens and the joys of vocational missions a gift that everyone should consider receiving. Every one of you in this room, whether you're 60 or 6, should consider vocational missions someday. I do. You say, what are you going to do when you're 65? I say, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I hope it involves missions. Children, teenagers, adults at Bethlehem, may we break free from our tiny little worlds. Little worlds of how do I look? Little worlds of will I succeed in school? Little world of family and how my family do, my kids do it. Little world of Bethlehem. Little world of neighborhood. Little world of American culture and sport and Marlins and Yankees. Little teeny world. Little teeny world. I have a suspicion. This I just throw this out as a possibility. I don't know if it's true. I think it's true that in this room, many personal problems, even physical problems, family problems, psychological problems, work problems, many personal problems are caused by and would be relieved by or caused by lack of a global vision. Our lives are too small. 
We're so wrapped up in our little selves. How am I going to do? How am I coming across? How's my family making it? And we don't even, we don't even have any on our screen, the unreached peoples of the world, with a burden and a zeal to do our part in a sending or a going. Because we, we compute exactly wrong. We say, I'm so burdened now with my own problems. I can't add anybody else's problems. That is absolutely inside out. It may be that many of your personal problems would be lightened or vanish if you gave yourself to 60 people groups in China in prayer and study and vision and thought and dreaming and going and suddenly you haven't thought about your hair for a week. We're sick as Americans. Because we're so ingrown. And I think God would make us well with the healing of the nations to us. What a world we live in. It is so different. We as a church must must not be ignorant of these things. The world is ignorant of the most important thing that happened in the 20th century. They don't even know what. The biggest world fact was in the last century. I'll read it to you from the book by Andrew Walls called The Cross-Cultural Process in Christian History. Quote, the 20th century has seen the, the great recession from Christian faith in the West. So that means Millions of people in the 20th century forsook the Christian faith in Europe and America. When I was in Scotland last summer, they said 400 people a week walk away from the Church of Scotland. Keep reading. There was an equally massive accession, that is a streaming in, to the faith, the Christian faith in non-Western world. At the beginning of the at the beginning of the century, 1900, 80% of those who professed Christianity lived in Europe and North America. Now, approaching 60% live in southern continents of Africa, Asia, Latin America, and the Pacific, and that proportion, not just the number, but the proportion, grows annually. Christianity began the 20th century as a Western religion, and indeed the Western religion, it ended the 20th century as a non-Western religion on track to become progressively more so. Implication, we are not at the center. We are at the border of what God is doing in this world. Which should cause us to grieve and rejoice. Grieve that God may be forsaking the Western world. To prove He can complete His purposes with nobodies. Lacking in all the technology. Lacking in the big universities. God will get his purpose done whatever way he pleases to make sure that he gets the glory. And if it means leaving us behind, that will be just fine with God. 
And so we should grieve that Europe is a wasteland by and large. And America is following behind. Maybe. I'm eager to resist that trend with you. I'm eager to burn at both ends of my candle till the day I die that the Twin Cities not be among the wasteland. And I don't believe it is today. These cities have more amazing evangelical churches. God is doing so much in these cities. It's amazing. But not to be taken for granted. But there should be a rejoicing, even if we are forsaken as a land, there should be a rejoicing among the elect that God is on the move in Africa and Asia and the Pacific and Latin America in ways nobody could have dreamed a hundred years ago. Let me give you a little example of the kind of world we live in today. You've read... Watched on TV, heard on the radio of the conflict in the global Anglican communion over homosexual clergy. Right? Big deal in the last several months, both in England and in America, both in Vermont and in Vancouver. Big deal. Do you know that there are more Anglicans in Nigeria than in England and America put together? And do you know that... They believe the Bible in Nigeria. And do you know that nobody could have dreamed 30 years ago that powerful liberal bishops in London would be called to account by bishops in Nigeria to believe the scriptures and act on them. And they vote in world synods. I mean, nobody would have dreamed the world we live in today just 30 years ago. And the place of the non-Western world in Christianity. And most of you don't know about it. The world certainly doesn't know about it. Because all the media are into the least important things. Military. Political. Those are not the most important things in the world. No heaven and hell hangs on your political system. No heaven and hell hangs on a war. Heaven and hell hang on the advance of the gospel. Those are the great advances, and the world never reports them. And if you just learn facts about the world from secular media, you won't know anything important. It's a new world, and that's point one of the sermon. Peoples and nations. Point two. What's the purpose of God for the nations? It's right there in verse 1. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol Him, all peoples. God's purpose for these 11,000 people groups or 24,000 is that He be praised. That He be extolled. That He be known enough through Jesus Christ that people are released from their bondage to self and can praise Him forever with joy. That's what God's purpose is in the world. 10,000 times more important than politics. 10,000 times more important than the military-industrial complex is whether the nations praise the creator of the universe or not and perish forever. 
Oh, that we could get a heavenly mindedness about the world so that we see it the way God sees it. Lives are a vapor. Eternity is long. Heaven is ecstatic with joy. Hell is horrific with pain. These are the great realities. How are you doing? Is your life counting for the big things in the world? Or are you just adapting to the folly that rules America. Here's my definition of missions on the basis of verse 1 of our text. Missions is a cross-cultural movement aimed at helping people stop, make much of themselves, and start making much of their Creator. Here's another definition. Missions is a cross-cultural effort to transform a people's hearts so that God is felt to be more praiseworthy than sports stars in Brazil or military might in North Korea or artistic achievements in Italy or anything else that God has made. That's what missions is for. Or third definition, missions is a cross-cultural endeavor to help people experience God as their treasure Above all earthly treasures. Or fourth definition. Missions is a cross-cultural life and death struggle to give people eternal life, which the Bible says consists in knowing and enjoying God. That's what missions is. It's telling the nations to praise God and giving them reasons for why they should and why they can and why it is such a joy to do it. Which, of course, is going to bring us to the gospel eventually, but I'll wait A few minutes on that. Missionaries don't just say, Psalm 117, 1, praise the Lord all nations. They say, Psalm 147, verse 1, praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God. It is pleasant. They say that. That's why we have the mission statement we do as a church. We exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples through Jesus Christ. It is pleasant to fulfill the purpose of God, namely to praise His name. And we explain why, and we bump into a problem, a big problem. I I read it again in the Financial Times in London last year. Somebody gave me this article, a book review by Michael Prouse, who states more clearly than I'd seen anybody state it since I'd read C.S. Lewis, where he stated it because it was a stumbling block for him. The problem is when you say that the purpose of God is to be praised. People don't like that. Here's the way Michael Prouse wrote it. I'll just read you his paragraph. Worship is an aspect of religion that I always found difficult to understand. Suppose we postulate an omnipotent being who, for reasons inscrutable to us, decided to create something other than himself. Why should he expect us to worship him? We didn't ask to be created. Our lives are often troubled. We know that human tyrants, puffed up with pride, crave adulation and homage But a morally perfect God would surely have no character defects. So why are all these people on their knees every Sunday? Takes your breath away. That's a 
a common response when the God-centeredness of God is preached. Which I preach everywhere I go. And the faces that I look on are utterly perplexed in the first half hour. That God is the most God-centered person in the universe. That God demands that we praise Him. And people, we don't like that kind of God. Here's the problem. Michael Prowse can only conceive of one incentive that God would demand praise. Namely, he's needy, like we are. I want praise because I'm sick. I'm sinful. I'm needy. I like to be praised because it strokes my fallen ego. So that's the way he pictures God. But his imagination is weak at this point. There is another possible motive and incentive why God calls for our praise. Suppose that admiration and its overflow in praise is the highest pleasure in the universe, which it is. And suppose that God is the most admirable being in the universe, which he is. What would love look like from God if that were the case? God would need to display himself as infinitely admirable, admirable, and he would need to remove obstacles like sin at the cost of his son's life, and he would need to beckon us, look at me, behold my glory. Be happy here. You go anywhere else, you perish. I am the most admirable, beautiful, satisfying display of glory that can be conceived or exist. Don't leave me. And he's not saying that because he needs us. Believe me, he does not need us. We desperately need him. And it just so happens He's really satisfying. C.S. Lewis saw the solution so clearly. We need to rehearse this every few years. Let me read you. Lewis was 29. And when he read the Psalms, it sounded like an old woman craving compliments. And then God broke in. And this is what happened. The most obvious fact about praise whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless, sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. That's why some of you don't praise in the service. You're just a little bit afraid that somebody's going to be distracted by your praise if it comes out. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers praising their favorite poet. 
walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians and scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time balanced and capacious minds praised most while the cranks and the misfits and the malcontents praised least. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge others to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmists, in telling everyone to praise God, are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, indeed we cannot help doing about everything else we value. Here comes the sentence that changed my life in 1968. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed Consummation. The implications of that I have been working on for 30 years. Praise is not tacked on to an enjoyment as a duty. It is the joy in consummation and expression. The implications of that are absolutely immense. For missions, it means this. Scotty Miser, on his way to Bolivia this Wednesday, standing tall beside Kenny, does not have to choose between the motivation of the glory of God in Bolivia and the motivation of the happiness of the street kids in Bolivia and their eternal well-being. Because the two... Are one. Because when those kids get supremely happy in God, the consummation of that happiness is praise to Him, which is what the glory of God is all about. And so the happiness of all the unreached peoples, if you're, if you're driven by the motivation of compassion for lost people, Bless you. And if you're driven by the zeal for the name of God being dishonored among the nations, bless you. But know know what? They're the same motivation if you understand why they are both biblical. God is most glorified when we're most satisfied. And in this eternal satisfaction that compassion longs to bring about, God is honored. So, Michael Prouse, I pray that somehow God will lead you 
to this explanation. And those of you who walked in with that kind of objection to God's pursuit of your praise, that now you would see that's the most loving thing God could do for you. Because until you praise him, you will not have joy as he designed you to have it, and it won't last forever. If you want it to be full and forever, you must relinquish that objection. Last point. What's the basis of the people's praise? We've talked about peoples and nations and what that means. Um, We've talked about the purpose of God for the nations, namely that he be praised with joy. And now, what's the basis of the people's praise? And that's what verse 2 is given uh, for us to see because it begins with the word for. So let's read the chapter. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For, because, here's the ground, here's the basis. Great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Now, here's where the gospel is going to come in. This text leads us straight to Jesus. Now, we need to see how that is in the last few minutes. How does that verse lead us naturally to Jesus Christ as the basis of all hope and all joy and all praise? Here's how I see it. Did you notice something troubling in the first phrase of verse 2? Praise the Lord, all nations. Why? For great is his steadfast love toward us. Now, I don't think the nations are going to like that. They're going to hear that and they're going to say, I don't get that. You want us to praise God because he loves you. I don't get that. That's good. You need to not get that. You need to be troubled by that. You need to ask how it is that this psalmist, this Jewish psalmist, this Israel worshiping, knowing the true Yahweh psalmist is say, come on, nations, praise the Lord because he loves us Jews. You need to think about that, nations. It goes like this. Back in Genesis 12, when God chose Israel for himself in Abraham, he said this. Genesis 12 to I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you, Abraham and your lineage in you, the Jews, I in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There they they are, the peoples, the nations. In you, in you, all the families will be blessed. So there's a, a link between God's unique covenant love for Israel and his purpose for the nations to be blessed in Israel. And so you got it. Hmm. All right. Now, how do they get connected? Salvation is of the Jews. God is working uniquely in Israel. By the way, parenthesis. Finally, I am so glad and so excited because next Sunday we get back to Romans chapter 11, verse one next Sunday. And the whole chapter, 17 sermons is on Israel and how it relates to the bigger global picture. This will be, I feel, one of the most momentous series for us because of the unbelievable powder keg in the Middle East.
So be praying earnestly that I have wisdom. Close parenthesis in a short answer of what's coming. How do the nations get connected to God's saving purpose in Israel? The answer is given in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Let me read it to you. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, or literally to his seed. It does not say seeds, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your seed, who is Christ. Christ is the seed, the seed. Paul looked at the story of Abraham with his Isaac and Ishmael and God narrowing down to Isaac. And he looked at his Isaac with his Jacob and Esau and his narrowing down to Jacob. And he saw an implication moving toward the Christ. And now this Christ comes into the world. He lives a perfect righteousness on behalf of those who would receive him so that all the demands of the law are fulfilled for us by him. He dies and bears the crushing wrath deserved by every sin I ever have or ever will commit. He raises triumphant over every one of the demonic influences among the peoples so that he can say all authority is mine. Go make disciples of the nations. And he says that. He doesn't rise from the dead and say, now let's all remember, I am the Jewish Messiah, so let us restrict our mission to the Jews. When he breaks free, that restriction that he held to for three years was blown apart. And he said, now, now you Jewish brothers of mine, go make disciples of all nations. And he holds out to those nations... God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, namely me, he says. And anyone who believes will not perish but have everlasting life. So that's how we get connected to Israel. We get connected to the promises to Abraham by the seed of Abraham, who is Christ, who beckons the world to believe in him. And by believing in him, we're united with him and we become true Jews. And we are part of the rich root of the olive tree. And everything that was ever promised to Israel is ours, which is going to be very controversial in this church in the next 17 weeks. Everything ever promised to Israel is ours. We are the true Israel. But I'm tempted to preach on about that and must wait. The point here is when verse 17, I mean, chapter 17, verse 2 says, Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for great is the steadfast love toward Israel. That must land on the nations as good news because the love of God for Israel has brought a Messiah into the world whose aim and design is to break the bounds and barriers of Israel and spill over for the good of the nations. And so what we preach is Christ. We preach Christ crucified and risen for the sake of the nations. We tell them he will take away your sins He will fulfill all of God's demands on your behalf. And he will die in your place and rise again. Trust him 
and you may live forever with infinite joy at his right hand. And until he comes again, he's gathering his elect from all the peoples. And one day he will be praised by all the nations.